This is Amy Boris with CII staff, and I'm speaking with CII research analyst Gabriel Mori about the study he conducted for the Council on Multiclass Stock. The study found that multiclass common stock with differentiated voting rights has no meaningful effect on long-term performance as measured by return on invested capital. So Gabriel, before we get into the weeds, could you tell us what inspired this study? Yeah, absolutely. To preface, dual class isn't a new phenomenon. It's actually been around since at least 1898 when the International Silver Company issued non-voting stock. But it was fairly rare for most of the 20th century as the New York Stock Exchange, which is the nation's largest, had restricted its use. But those rules were relaxed in the 1980s, and since then, investors have faced a spate of high-profile dual-class recapitalizations and IPOs. The latest wave began with Google in 2004 and has been seen mostly with tech companies. Now, dual-class companies often justify their structures by arguing that they're going to create higher long-term value if they insulate their innovative founders from short-term market forces. We wanted to check those claims for ourselves, and along with that, add to the existing body of research on the subject, specifically by using return on invested capital as our measure of value. So to do that, we built the two regression models in the study, running through them nine years of data from facts set in the Securities and Exchange Commission on 1,762 Russell 3000 companies. While other research is focused on multi-class stock and performance, what's specifically different about this study? Yeah, so there, there are two things that this study really expands on the existing research. The first is the extensive length of time covered in the sample size, and then also our use of return on invested capital, or ROIC, as the measure of performance. In a quick caveat to that, that there are some studies that have bigger sample sizes, and there are some that cover more years, but I have not found one that covers as much time with as big a sample size that we have. So it's unique in the scope and the breadth, if, if that makes sense. Great. So what did you find, and what are the implications of those findings for investors? So we found no statistically significant link between dual-class stock and return on invested capital, or uh, ROIC. Uh, that means that any correlation that the regression model found is more likely to be from chance than an actual relationship. Essentially, there isn't enough evidence that multi-class stock impacts ROIC, and so we have to conclude that no effect exists. If you want to put this into statistical parlance, we'd use a double negative. We'd say that we failed to reject the hypothesis that dual-class stock has no effect on ROIC. These findings really undercut the common refrain that multi-class structures are needed to insulate innovative founders and leaders from short-term market pressures. Now, some might also contend the reverse could be true, that if dual-class equity doesn't hurt ROIC, why not choose it? You know, that's true, but only to a point, because what the study doesn't show is that it's really hard to fix a faltering dual-class company like Bombardier or Viacom, both of which have had pretty recent meltdowns where entrenched interests have prevented shareholders from replacing board members even though performance has fallen. So why did you use ROIC as the measure of performance? Well, in a nutshell, ROIC is easy to measure, it's hard to manipulate, and it accounts for all types of invested capital. Many other studies use either Tobin's Q or some per share figure like earnings per share, say, uh, to measure performance. So Tobin's Q is the ratio of the market value of assets to their replacement costs, and it's a pretty good figure for performance. But unfortunately, it it does include some hard-to-measure estimates of intangible assets, you know, goodwill, employee morale, things like that. 
Similarly, earnings per share or other per share estimates are very easily manipulated by companies. All they have to do is launch a stock buyback, and there you have it. Their EPS goes up regardless of how the company is actually doing. In contrast, ROIC is based off of only auditable and hard-to-manipulate figures. It also takes into account capital from non-equity investments like bondholders. Why is your independent variable based on the extent to which superior shares control total voting power? We hypothesized that the degree of control by superior owners mattered more than just whether or not a company had dual-class structures. So, for instance, dual-class control might matter a lot less at a company whose superior class holders only have 10% of the vote than one where they control 60% of the vote. Why were governance factors like board independence or simple majority vote requirements among the control variables? We didn't control for other governance factors for two reasons. First, we just don't have access to a database that provides governance data for all nine years of our study. The database we do have only gives current date of information. So to figure out whether or not a company had, say, staggered board terms, we'd have to look in its bylaws on a year-by-year basis, which isn't an easy task when you're doing you know, almost 1,800 companies over a nine-year period. And then second, governance factors would run into a problem called endogeneity, which is a word that basically means that while a governance decision may influence a company's performance, that performance could also influence a governance decision. So, you know, for instance, one could argue that the biggest S&P 500 companies are so successful because they have good governance. But it's also true that the biggest S&P 500 companies adopt good governance because of their prominence. You know, like we've seen with proxy access. So it runs in both directions. If, for those of you listening that have already read the study, you might be thinking, well, you did talk about that in the study. There's a whole section on endogeneity. And that's because dual-class status, the variable of interest, has an endogeneity problem too. It is a governance variable. And so we had to use a method called instrumental variable regression to overcome that. Some high-profile multi-class companies, such as Facebook and Snap, were not included in the sample of dual-class companies. Why is that? It's a really good question, and it's something I wish we could have done, but we had to require that any company included in our study had to be publicly traded for all nine years of it. So Facebook, Snap, Zynga, Box, a bunch of the other big tech companies that have come out in recent years, they all came out after the cutoff date, which was December 31st, 2006. There was really no good way to include them. We could have shortened the time dates that we looked at, you know, went from like 2012 to 2015 as our study period, and and we'd get more companies that way, but it wouldn't really be a long-term study at that point. Three years doesn't really constitute long-term performance. So we had to make a trade-off between the length of the study and the number of companies that we'd end up covering in the data set. Got it. Well, thanks, Gabriel. This study adds to the growing body of research that punctures the claims of companies about the virtues of multi-class share structures. It also underscores why CII continues to advocate for the one-share, one-vote principle. Members can access an executive summary of the dual-class stock study and the full research paper from our homepage, www.cii.org. Just click on the Publications tab at the top and then click on Special Reports. Thank you very much. Thank you.